By the time American circuses achieved their massive popularity in the 1870s, the menagerie was a major feature. There were exhibits held in separate tents from the primary circus, and audiences had to pass through them on the way to the big top. At first, they featured unusual animals like elephants, camels, zebras, and if you were really lucky, you got to see a rhinoceros or a giraffe. It was kind of like having the zoo brought right to your town. Soon, these sideshows became much bigger parts of the circus, and they shied away from zebras and elephants and instead focused on acts much more akin to the elephant man. Widely credited with coining the adage, there's a sucker born every minute, P.T. Barnum was a major influence in sideshow development, having demonstrated their popularity at his American Museum. His Museum of Oddities would mutate into something different and give birth to exhibits of biological rarities for the amusement of the masses. Once upon a time, sideshows were the worst. Let's go back in time to 1831. Alexei de Tocqueville and Gustave de Beaumont, a couple of French aristocrats, visited Scudder's American Museum, expecting to see paintings and valuable works of art. Beaumont instead wrote that they laughed like the blessed to see the sideshow-like contents such as a magic lantern and some stuffed birds. It was not super impressive. Ten years later, it was bought by none other than P.T. Barnum. It was turned into Barnum's American Museum, which he'd operated for 24 years. It offered both strange and educational attractions and performances, let's say. Some were quite reputable and historically or scientifically valuable. Others, not so much. So basically, it was your run-of-the-mill combination zoo, museum, lecture hall, wax museum, theater, and freak show but it also featured a lot of visual forerunners to modern cinema. There were dioramas, panoramas, something called cosmoramas. There were also forerunners to what would ultimately be the traveling circus. In fact, there was a flea circus, a loom powered by a dog, if you can imagine, the trunk of a tree under which Jesus' disciples sat, an oyster bar, a rifle range, waxworks, glass blowers, taxidermist, phrenologist, pretty baby contests, Ned the learned seal, the Fiji mermaid, which if you don't know what the Fiji mermaid is, it's a mummified monkey's torso sewed to a fish's tail. There were little people, which is not what they called them back then. There were Chang and Ang, the original Siamese twins born in Siam. There were beluga whales kept in an aquarium in the basement. There were giants, Native Americans dancing, Grizzly Adams trained bears, magicians, ventriloquists, blackface minstrel shows, and live adaptations of biblical tales and Uncle Tom's Cabin. Look, if you can't find something offensive in that museum, then you could probably get your money back. However, it all went up in flames July 13, 1865. 
the American Museum was burned to the ground in one of the most spectacular fires New York's ever seen. Animals were seen jumping from the burning building only to be shot below by police officers. Many animals were burned to death in their enclosures, including those beluga whales who boiled to death in their tanks. Pretty gruesome stuff. It was allegedly during this fire that a fireman by the name of Johnny Denham killed an escaped tiger with his axe before rushing into the burning building to carry out a 400-pound woman on his shoulders. Now that's a show. A new attraction called Barnum's New Museum opened September 6, 1865 in what's now Soho in Manhattan. But guess what happened two and a half years later? Yep, it burned down. Clearly, it was time to take the show on the road. Huckster, fraud, con artist, prankster, both terrible and amazing businessman, any of these descriptions would fit Phineas Taylor Barnum. Barnum was often referred to as the high prince of humbugs, and he saw nothing wrong with entertainers or vendors using hoaxes or humbug, as he termed it, in promotional material as long as the public was getting entertainment value. Housed in its own tent, the sideshow typically would be fronted with giant banners or panels illustrating the marvels inside. Oftentimes, these images shown on the outside were far more spectacular than the act happening on the inside of the tent. Jumbo, the world's biggest elephant, purchased from a London zoo against Queen Victoria's wishes, which caused an international scandal, was nowhere near the biggest elephant in the world. Just a pretty big elephant with arthritis and rotten teeth from eating too many buns. Lionel, the lion-faced man, just was a guy with extra hair glued on for effect. And of course, Tom, the world's smallest general, was actually just a kid. He was just like a, a young boy in a soldier's outfit. Even when acts weren't exaggerated or flat-out farcical, they were majorly problematic in many other ways. Jojo, the dog-faced boy, was a kid paid to bark in a cage for a living. And Isaac W. Sprague, the living skeleton who suffered from a form of muscular atrophy, stood around five foot six and weighed 44 pounds. His health was in such a poor state that he often carried milk and a flask around his neck that he would sip on occasionally just to stay conscious. Also upsetting was a disabled African-American boy, William Henry Johnson. Now this kid had to sit in a cage dressed in a really hot furry suit shrieking and rattling the bars, pretending to be the wild man of Africa, or man monkey. Not great. But I think the worst one of all was Joyce Heath. She was an 80-year-old black slave who Barnum bought, yeah, bought, and branded George Washington's 160-year-old nanny to become an exhibit. The most astonishing and interesting curiosity in the world trumpeted Barnum's sensationalist publicity flyers. She was billed as the first person who put clothes on the unconscious infant who was destined in the afterdays to lead our heroic fathers to glory. It turns out Miss Heth was blind and partially paralyzed. She had just enough movement in her right arm to smoke her corncob pipe. Barnum liked to go around bragging about the time he plied her with alcohol 
and then pulled her teeth out to make her look closer to 160 years old. She only lasted a year under Barnum's care, but then he charged the public 50 cents each to attend her public autopsy. Pretty despicable stuff. However, this is not a story about P.T. Barnum, or otherwise we would be here all night. It's also not about whether animals were treated well or if performers were adequately compensated or treated with respect or dignity. Believe me, we could do an entire series just on that. This is about babies. Premature babies. Now, I personally can't think of anything more obscene than taking a prematurely born baby away from its mother and then charging other people a quarter to watch it squirm in a box. But that's exactly what Martin Cooney did. Cooney's career had always been a little controversial. Many in the medical profession viewed him with suspicion and others with outright hostility. The New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children had repeatedly accused Cooney of exploiting babies and endangering their lives by putting them on show. According to Claire Prentice in Smithsonian Magazine, Cooney said he had studied medicine in Leipzig and Berlin. However, I could not find evidence of Cooney having studied medicine at university in either city. To become a physician, one was required to write a thesis. Now, the U.S. National Library of Medicine has copies of all the German records, but she couldn't locate his. Cooney was deliberately evasive about his date and place of birth. I have discovered that he immigrated to the U.S. in 1888 at 19 years old. But someone of that age would not have been old enough to have studied at a university in Leipzig at Berlin before going on to do graduate work, as Cooney claimed to have done in numerous press interviews. According to the 1910 census, Cooney listed his profession as medical supplies. Then, in 1930, he was calling himself a physician. At the time, the medical profession's attitude towards premature babies was that it's expensive, and many thought, pointless to try to care for them. Babies born at low birth weight were often written off as weaklings by mainstream medicine. The mortality rates were just too high. There was simply no way to treat a baby born so early that its organs had not fully developed. So who was this Cooney guy? Some baby thief? Some monster doing unspeakable experiments on preemies? Not exactly. More than likely, Cooney had been a medical technician in Germany who then came to America. Now, the boxes that the babies were placed into for display, those were actually early models of infant incubators. Incubators are designed to provide an environment that can be adjusted to provide the ideal temperature, amount of oxygen, humidity, and light. They also offer protection from allergens, bacteria, and outside sensory overstimulation that can cause them harm. Martin Cooney ran premature infant incubator exhibits displayed to the public for more than three decades, most famously at Coney Island. They gained major traction at the Chicago World's Fair, which took place over 18 months in 1933 and 1934. Prentice also goes on to describe in her book, which I'll link below, that Cooney took in premature infants from all backgrounds, regardless of race or social economics, which was not common at the time. 
He also flat out refused to take any payment from parents. Caring for a premature baby in an incubator in 1903 cost about $15 a day per baby, which is approximately $405 daily in today's money. All of these costs were covered by the 25 cent admission fee paid by the adoring public who waited in lines drawn from all four corners of the fairgrounds to get a look at those incredibly small, new little humans, some no bigger than the palm of your hand. On July 25th, 1934, to celebrate the success of their facility, Cooney threw a homecoming celebration for babies who'd benefited from the incubators at the Chicago World's Fair. Of the 58 babies Cooney had helped the year before, 41 returned with their mothers. Said a radio broadcaster covering the event, the incubator station for premature babies is not primarily a place of exhibiting tiny infants. Instead, it's actually a life-saving station where prematurely born babies are brought. The place is spick and span with doctors and graduate nurses in constant attendance. I checked for stories online about the babies that grew up thanks to Cooney's care, and I found dozens. At Cornell University's New York Hospital in 1939, Kathy Meyer was born two months premature. When Meyer's parents realized they couldn't afford an incubator treatment, it was instead suggested that they send her to Martin Cooney, who was nearby at the New York World's Fair. Cooney sent his incubator ambulance immediately. I was a sickly baby, said Meyer, and if it wasn't for Cooney, I wouldn't be here today, and neither would my four children, nor my five grandchildren. We have so much to thank him for. And just like that, something so steeped in exploitation, something so stripped of dignity, became this beautiful coming together of a wonderful liar and an impossible looking human curiosity that would positively impact generations to come through compassion and hope. Big thanks to Claire Prentice, whose book, Miracle at Coney Island, How a Sideshow Doctor Saved Thousands of Babies and Transformed American Medicine can be found via the link below, as well as can all the other sources used to produce this episode. My name's Matt Johnston, and I love a good underdog story. I'm fascinated with people who gave it their best shot and didn't just come up short, but came in dead last. If you'd like to share a similar story with me, email us at you'retheworstpod at gmail.com. Speaking of sharing, if you like what I'm doing, please tell a friend. Telling even just one person can actually make a huge difference. So thanks for listening. Please follow the show on social media at YTWpod. For a transcript, just go to halfmiledigital.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>